Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Audrey Simons and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here with my co-host... Audra Simons. Hi, Audra. Hi, Rachel. How are you? I'm well. How are you? It's another Friday recording. I love Friday recordings. Exactly. It's the end of the week. What a great way to start the weekend. Exactly. And I think, you know, you and our guests are already at happy hour time, so no judgments well, if, obviously. if that's what's going on right now. <laughs> uh, it'll make it for a really awesome conversation. Uh, so without further ado, though, I do want to welcome back to the podcast Miko Hippinen. And I know I, I know I butchered that, Miko. I apologize. No, no, no. Is you're the- you're you're like a native. It's, that's exactly <laughs> the way you say it. <laughs> Not even close. Not remotely. <laughs> Not remotely. Um, he is the chief research officer with Secure. Uh, global security expert, speaker, and author. Um, and he works as a let's see, also the principal research advisor at Epsecure. You have so many accolades, Miko. I don't even know where to start. I mean, you've. Taught, you've lectured at Stanford, Oxford, Cambridge. You've been named Global 100 Thinkers List. Uh, I am just so excited that we have a chance to talk to you again, particularly on um, this really fun conversation around AI. Mm-hmm. But I'd love the jumping off point because you've recently been on you've been on a book tour. You have this amazing book that's come out, and now it's it's seeing all this great success and being you know translated in all these different languages. And I'd love for you to share a bit about that with our audience, but also kind of what's changed since you first published that book? Mm -hmm. The thing I love about working in cybersecurity is that there's never a boring day. I go and do a lot of briefings to customers and clients, like meet leadership teams and boards, and I never have to repeat the same things, same stories. There's always new case studies and and new problems to be solved, and there's always new threats, which of course, that's not good news, but it it does keep... I mean, I, I always keep telling people that I haven't had a boring day at work yet, and I've been working in this field for 32 <laughs> years. So I think that's a pretty pretty uh, good testament on how much the field is changing all the time. So how have your views changed since you wrote the book? Do you still believe in everything that you put in there, or have, have you, has there been any kind of compelling things that have happened as every day is different that have made you change some of your thoughts or opinions? I made one big mistake when I wrote the book, which is which which uh, I don't think I could have avoided. But in hindsight, I clearly got one crucial fact wrong, which is that I I tell in the book how we and our generations will forever be remembered as the first generation which got online. Like that's the biggest accomplishment we did. When, whenever mm-hmm. history books hundreds of years in the future describe the early 2000s, the first thing they'll mention is that these were the first people who went online. Mankind was offline for 100,000 years around late 1990s, early 2000s. They went online and now we will be online forever. That's what I wrote. That's what I believed at the time. Like, around 18 months ago when I finished the, the manuscript, if I would have to think that again now, I think it's perfectly possible that our generations will not be remembered forever as the first one which went online. It might be that we will be remembered as the first one which gained access to artificial intelligence. That seems more likely every day. 
And that's pretty wild. The world is changing very quickly. Absolutely. I, there was this amazing SC Media article um, where you, you and uh, the CEO of your company were quoted. And, and I, I have some of these sound bites that I thought were fantastic. We're living the hottest AI summer in history, and it's going to be hard to keep up. Um, but also, reality as we know it is over. And this revolution has the power to shape the world for the better or worse, um, particularly around you know, deep fakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you discern what's real and what's not real? And I, I would love for you to expand a little bit on that kind of from your perspective. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. It's amazing how long this company, WitSecure, which used to be F-Secure Business, which used to be Data Fellows, it's amazing how long this company has been involved with artificial intelligence, even though we've always been a, a, a cybersecurity company. The guy who founded the company, um, Mr. Risto Silasma, when he was studying in university, he wrote the first articles for local computer magazines about artificial intelligence. And this is 1987. So 1987, wow. the guy who still is the chairman of the company was researching and writing about artificial intelligence. Naturally, that then translated to this company, like starting to build automation and, and machine learning systems fairly early on. We've been doing fully automated malware detection with malware uh, with machine learning for 18 years now. So wow. 18 years ago, the world was quite different. And for 18 years, yes. we've been waiting for the enemy to catch up. Um, and, and the barriers for entry for building like complete automation or using these automation frameworks, they've been too high. But over the last year, the barriers have completely come down. Now we are seeing real attacks done by by our enemies, not just deep fakes, but for example, malware, which uses large language model to reroute its own code. Um, and, and there's still one one big thing that I'm waiting for, which hasn't happened yet. And, and that's going to change, change the world again. And that's going to be fully automated automation of malware campaigns. Um, they could have done it already. Wow. The technology is out there but we haven't seen it yet. So you you talk about in some of your your talks, like the one that you did in May this year, about cybercrime unicorns. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're referring to, the ones who are going to actually automate the attacks? Or what, what do you actually mean by that? It's simply a reference to startup unicorns or unicorn companies, the, the nickname yes. we have for the wealthiest and um, the, the highest valued technology companies out there. And if you think about cybercrime gangs with the same lens, you'll see that the gangs like Lockbit or Clop, Alpha, RansomX, maybe Black Pasta, all of those, if they would be companies, they would be unicorns. Look, you look at their revenues, you look at their growth rate, you look at how much money they have in the bank, well, in Bitcoin, and, and, and if that would be a legal entity... Um, <laughs> It would be a unicorn. And that's a scary thought because wealth yes. makes them powerful. They, they can run their operations in a manner which resembles traditional real-world organized crime gangs more and more. They have organizations, they have middle management, they have physical offices, they pay salaries to their employees, they have HR departments recruiting new employees to join the, the, the gangs. They have lawyers. Wow. So, yes. so this is not the development we like to see, but that's the direction we're going towards. And that's interesting where the money came from, because it's not just the fact that um, attacks like ransomware have been making so much money. 
It's the fact that it's been making money for many years and these gangs have been keeping their wealth not in their bank accounts, but in Bitcoin. Imagine having a million dollars in Bitcoin five years ago and sitting on it for the last five years. It's grown hundredfold. And this is one source of the right. wealth that these gangs now control. So where do you see them going? Because if, if and how do we know that they have an HR department? <laughs> oh, we, I mean, well, we do know because we, there's leaks. There's been multiple exactly, leaks from yeah. these different gangs. Some of their internal chats have been infiltrated and, and so on. So, so we know. They, they, they run these fairly professionally. Um, there's, um, we don't have direct evidence of this, but we believe, and I've been told by another um, researcher, that there's this one gang which has a business analyst working for them, where the whole, whole uh, job function of that analyst is that when the gang uses ransomware attacks against large companies, the first thing they do is to steal the financial figures and bookkeeping information, which they will wow. then give to the criminal gang's analyst, which means he can come up with a money figure. Like, here's how much money this victim could pay us tomorrow. Oh, here's, here's how much money yes. they have in their bank wow. account, how many publicly traded stocks they have they could sell overnight, how, many, how much loans they have. And that totally changes the negotiation or haggling that the companies go through that decides to pay the ransom because everybody tries to talk the price down. But in this case, the attackers know exactly yeah. how much money you have in the bank. Excellent. So they're looking at... You think it's excellent? I think it's horrible. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's amazing that it's that it has become that... Exactly, yeah. ...professionalized. So you have to think about when we do like marketing campaigns mm -hmm. or we go and we've done an event, we have a proposed ROI, right. like return on investment from that. This is like return on investment cyber attacks. Right. You got to hit your annual KPIs, Audra. You got to hit them. I know. Yeah. Sorry. I, I, it's terrifying, but it's impressively professional. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The, the business of, you know, I guess ransomware, uh, and, and it's big business. Right? It is big business, but, but we do have and to remember all the things it's that they could the, the thing we have to remember, though, is that although we focus on ransomware as a particular problem a lot, for a good reason, it is a very real, very big problem. It's not the only problem. Things like uh, business email compromise no. are, are making massive amounts of money as well. And of course, ransom attacks using denial of service attacks and just traditional data theft. But the thing that worries me about business email compromise and... and uh, basically all kinds of scams is the automation we are likely to see thanks to large language models. Um, easy example is, is romance scams, which is a very, uh, very well known and, and a huge problem, not an enterprise problem, but a consumer problem. But most of the scammers scam like one victim at a time or maybe two or three victims at a time and they can only scam the people who, who, whose language they speak. Imagine using these modern large language frameworks, uh, which, which completely can automate the process of scamming from, from doing manual scamming to scamming thousands or tens of thousands of victims at the same time across all language barriers. These things are really powerful in the right hands and really destructive in the wrong hands. The thing is, not the romance ones as far as I'm aware, but certainly... Um, 
the email compromise has picked up massively in Middle Eastern regions mm -hmm. recently, truly down to the fact that they can actually do accurate translations that are linguistically appealing to people to get them to click on links and things like that. And that the rise on that is already happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, I, I'm a great example on, 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 on I, I, <laughs> what I mean is that I speak a language which is, which is complicated and not really speaking very widely. My home language is Finnish. There's five million Finns. It's one of the toughest languages in the world. And when I test large language models like Claude from Anthropic or GPT from OpenAI, these models are amazing. They speak probably better Finnish than I do. And I am a Finn. And no one has, has taught these systems, the language at all. They've only been given all the Finnish content, all the Finnish books, magazines, newspapers, Twitter posts and Reddit posts, and it read it all. And it picked up the language, sort of like how we humans pick up the language. And the end result mm -hmm. is, is, is quite amazing, which is, again, exciting and scary at the very same time. Yeah. <laughs> so, so considering all the threats and that they're going to get more, um, due to people using AI to actually help and automation and those sorts of things. Like, how are we going to counter these attacks? You know, how are businesses going to be counter it? How is, as organizations that do cybersecurity, could we look to counter these types of attacks? Mm -hmm. So they are quite different problems. Let's first speak about the malware Automation of malware campaigns, which I mentioned. Um, we've been building automation on our end, on defense end, for years and years. Like I mentioned at, at WitSecure for, for 18 years from today, practically all cybersecurity companies, well, I, I'm, I'm certain all cybersecurity companies heavily rely on, on machine learning and automation and, and large language models and uh, frameworks of all kinds, which means we have a head start. The good guys have a head start. We've been building defenses using automation for years and years which translates into speed. Um, when there's a new, new exploit out there and someone starts scanning the internet looking for vulnerable machines, or when there's a new malware campaign where email is being sent out with malicious attachments or malicious links, um, security companies spot these amazingly quickly because we run all these honeypots and honey nets. We collect massive amounts of network traffic. We use automation to to find anomalies and our systems are able to pick up which anomalies are attacks and which ones are not. We automatically collect samples of the attacks, analyze the samples, make the call automated in an automated fashion, whether it's good or bad, build detection automatically, test the detection, deploy detection. Everything happens in minutes. It's amazing how quickly security companies can react today thanks to this automation which has been built over years. And the attackers, the other side, they are still slow. They are still at human speed. Their reaction takes hours or days. I mean, our system picks up a bad URL, a bad domain, bad website, and we block it. And the, the attackers do nothing. They wake up the next morning and then they realize that it's been blocked. And then they manually go and register a new domain name and change their settings. It's slow. I've used a comparison that it's like a game of ping pong where on one side of the table is a human ping pong player and the other side is, is a robot, which is, of course, much, much faster. And this, when this changes, and it could change tomorrow, then we have a game of ping pong when, where you have a robot on both sides of the table. And we believe, I believe, I hope, I wish that we are 
faster, thanks to the, all, all the work we've done for years and years. But that's all it is. It's, it's a hope, wish, a dream. We won't actually know until it happens. And it will happen soon. So we will see this soon. But I suppose the, the, the answer to your question is, like, what, what can we do? It's going to be AI against AI. These kind of attacks will not be fought in any other way. And then when we look at other problems beyond, um, you know, malware, malware automation or malware campaign automation, um, deep fakes, well, that's that's a little bit different problem. Um, we can try to build, again, AI-fueled technologies which will spot deep fake voice, deep fake images, deep fake videos, but that's pretty hard to actually do. And it even there, it depends on what kind of deep fakes do you want to fight. Are you interested in fighting a phone call which pretends to be from your CFO? Or are you trying to pretend a deep fake on TV where President Biden or President Zelensky is saying something that he didn't say? So we have different categories of problems here. The easy thing we should be doing today is to counteract these um, deep fakes of known uh, publicity figures or political figures, which we could be counteracting already today simply by starting a procedure where all media houses publish the source material of their interviews on some file server somewhere signed with cryptographically strong keys, which then translates to the fact that if there's a video clip of someone saying something weird, anybody who suspects if it's if there's foul play involved, they could go to the source material and double check if that's exactly what was said originally or has it been modified. And since we would have the original files and they would have been signed, we could tell what's, what's real and what's not. And I'm not like estimating that everybody would double check everything. Of course not. But it would be enough for one person to figure out that this isn't real and, and blow the whistle. And that would solve the problem for mainstream broadcast the deepfakes. But on a more kind of enterprise level and protecting against effectively maybe attempts at fraud, mm -hmm. you know, the, the whole kind of using audio only and doing a deepfake, because you, you can literally do a recording of your voice for 30 seconds a minute and then write, what you would like yourself to say and get something sent out there. And so the sort of ones where your CEO says, yes, you need to go and sort out this outstanding amount that needs to be sent to this account. It, the challenge on that is the live human bit mm. yep. in terms of how do you get the live human to not kind of go, oh my God, I really need to do this really quickly because <laughs> my CEO mm -hmm. says so. Yep, that's... That's a tough problem, and we have no technical solution to that problem. Um, it really is then a problem of educating the, the users. And these kind of issues, they, 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 it seems like an unsummable problem, like how the hell are you ever going to stop all of these problems? But it's a much smaller problem when you realize that the targets of these kind of BEC or CEO scams or financial scams altogether it's a very limited amount of employees within an organization. Like how many people do you have in your company mm -hmm. who can actually move companies' money? Most people can't do that. Right. It's, 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 it's a handful of employees, even in a large organization. And those are the ones that you have to train specially against these. They have to, have to understand how these attacks are really pulled off, how it really is being done by the criminals. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and once they have been... Uh, educated on these topics, they, they, they know how to follow a procedure. And, and, and 
some of the tricks these BEC scammers pull off, even without deep fakes, are are pretty remarkable. There was one case I was researching where the first thing the attacker did when he um, got a, a financial clerk on the on the on the phone and he was pretending to be the chairman of the board, the first thing he said to the clerk was that, listen carefully, I'm putting you on our insider list effective immediately. Everything I'm about to tell you is confidential and you must not discuss it with anyone except me or our uh, general counsel. Do you understand? Yes or no? And, and that's a really powerful move, you know, because if, if mm-hmm. you pull it off, if the victim believes that he or she really is on an insider list, then he or she can't just go and ask for help from, from his colleagues or her right. colleagues. And, uh, and, and it also accomplished the other thing which many of these scams rely on, which is like boosting the self-importance of the victim. So you could sort of imagine the, the, the clerk coming from the meeting and, and the office friends are asking, hey, what was it? What did the CEO ask, ask, ask you to do? And he or she will be that, unfortunately, I can't tell you what we discussed. It's a secret. So suddenly I'm more important than you. I'm trusted. Uh-huh. And, 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 and that makes you more compliant with whatever the attacker wants to pull off. These are psychological tricks and the way we counteract them mm-hmm. typically isn't technology. It's by education. It's it's interesting you say that, uh, Miko. I was reading an article this morning in a CIO journal that's talking about, um, I guess the Wall Street Journal was talking about um, future positions, right? Roles, technology roles that would come open in the age of AI. And one of them was an AI psychotherapist. <laughs> yeah. I saw this story, actually. That was a great <laughs> article. <laughs> And that's that's what it makes me think about. I mean, AI does create a lot of new job opportunities. So uh, it's 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 kind of interesting to see where that path may go. Yeah. But was the psychotherapist for the machine learning technique or was it for the humans who are actually dealing with it? It's actually putting the models on the couch, what they call oh, okay. it. Yeah, evaluating a model's upbringing and scrutinizing its training for errors and sources of bias. Yeah. yeah. It, so, it might not have been completely yeah. serious about this, but yeah. And, and that's right, one right. of the, when you think about how the world is changing regarding to how our, our jobs are changing, uh, one mistake I'm a little bit worried about is that companies and leaderships in companies are a little bit too fast in trying to replace humans with machines. I think humans, mm-hmm. yes, we are more productive with these automation systems and generative AI and large language models, but replacing a big part of the workforce with you know, Python scripts isn't here yet, and I don't think it's going to be here for a while. I do believe our work is changing, but uh, I don't think your position is going to be taken by AI. It's probably going to be taken by another employee who's better with AI than you are. Right, exactly. But it's, it is interesting, like prompt engineering. I mean, that's that's bubbling up very quickly mm-hmm. uh, into a needed skill set. Uh, yep. You know, as ChatGPT and others have just exploded, and uh, that's that's a very real you know upskilling need, right? And, and that's and that's one thing why actually trickle down to, yeah. the, the, seeing other people's prompts is actually really powerful. I especially see this when when creating images, uh, as you might know, when you use Midjourney to create images, the interface is Discord, the chat application, which means mm-hmm. you'll see other people generating images in the same channel as you are, and you'll 
well, I steal from their prompt all the time. They have like nice like uh, settings or resolution modifiers or they change the aspect ratio of the images or they use specific keywords to get some kinds of lenses or, or camera types or film types. And uh, if it looks nice, I'll, I'll steal it, steal it with pride. But the thing, <laughs> the thing here is though, I mean, who... I mean, I, I know when you generate these images, they're typically copyright-free, or let's say Midjourney Mid 5.1 generates images which are under Creative Commons 4, which means you could print the images on T-shirt and sell the T-shirts for profit, and that would be legal. But is it really that clear? Because all of these images that are underneath in the engines are photographs or drawings made by photographers and artists. And and this is... I don't think we are we are really nowhere near having real rules on how these large language models can use existing copyright and trademark content. It's, and, it, and that was, a, you know, the crux, I think, of the recent, you know, the Writers Guild here in SAG-AFTRA strikes, right, mm -hmm. in, in the U.S. Um, you know, what, what, what is the recourse if they just take your likeness and then use that for some other thing, you know, mm -hmm. and, and don't pay the artist for uh, that creation. I mean, it's, it's, it's tricky, but I, I think that leads to a really interesting conversation on regulation. I mean, it's, it's, we're so early in the AI game, relatively speaking, how yeah. do you regulate that? Or how do you address all these different and, areas and of concern? who, who has the right exactly. to regulate it? Mm -hmm. I think actors and uh, singers and what have you probably won't have any real beef with the fact that someone's generating content using their like there's a movie and you can change the the actors to whoever you like as long as the actors you know are 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 getting paid for it if their their likeness right. or voices are stolen and used by others i think of course that's a much bigger problem then again maybe they don't want to appear in a particular type of movie and you know what kind of movies i'm immediately thinking about here so this, this is uh -huh. a complex problem we yes. have new technologies which will be able to generate you know great benefits and great new problems all of this is exciting and scary at the same time yes but where do you see the regulation coming from because well, i know the the uk was standing up saying we're involved with AI. We should actually help lead the world in how we regulate it. <laughs> and you kind of go in comparison to whom, <laughs> which, you know, it's, 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 where do you think that kind of regulation should come from? Should it be the industries that are being impacted or government or where do you see that? Or where do your musings take you on that? EU has been building the AI Act already for two years. It's um, about to be ratified and then it's going to be passed into laws in member states. We'll probably have real concrete regulation from EU in a year and a half, something like that. Um, and then we'll see just how successful it was in, in doing what it aims to do. Um, there's some things in the drafts of the EU AI Act that I really like. Um, for example... The fact that when we, humans, are interacting with artificial intelligence, and it's not obvious that it's artificial intelligence, we, humans, should be told that this is AI. That this tech support engineer Jack that you're speaking with on the phone isn't actually a human. Um, and I think this is important. Um, also, I believe that very big part of, of, for example, tech support will be done better by machines than by humans, because it 
tech support mm-hmm. AI has read and remembers all the manuals and it has the full list of all possible problems in, in, in his or her head. And they can like email or chat or speak with you just like a human can. But when we interact with things like these and they are not humans, but look or, or act like humans, we should be told. Um, also, I think it's important we must not be, when, when we get closer to more powerful models, we must not give certain rights to AIs, things like right for ownership. Um, and the, I know this sounds a little bit like science fiction plot, but if some, if, if the idea of a self-aware superhuman intelligence is scary, what's even more scary is the idea of self-aware superhuman intelligence, which has a billion dollars in its bank account. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> that that I agree with. Then, then it can just so, bribe itself to wherever it wants to go and do whatever it wants to do. <laughs> and of course, these kind of technologies are probably superior in making money. They they are probably well equipped in trading stocks or cryptocurrencies or what have you. If they can set up bank accounts or incorporate companies, they could certainly do that. And I think that's a prime example of a bad idea. So does it... So do the EU regulations cover things around privacy? So if I'm a human and I'm interacting with AI, how do I know that what I'm saying or how I'm interacting is actually, I don't know, GDPR compliant? Yeah, it it, uh, mentions both sides of privacy as it comes to teaching large language models or or machine learning in general. When they're teaching the the original models, where the information comes from, how how they are allowed to use information, and if it's trademarked or copyrighted information, how, what are the rules on that? And then both the reinforcement learning, which is done by the, the companies themselves, but also the, the learning gathered from the interaction with the users, like what are the limits of using that information to train the models fur- further? And when you... Talk with companies which are writing their own internal AI policies nowadays. That's a prime example of what they're trying to fight right now. How how to prevent the in-house lawyers from pasting drafts of confidential agreements to Mm ChatGPT for rewriting them to be more understandable. How to prevent the coders from uh, sending proprietary code with, I don't know, API keys or what have you, secrets into Codex or Copilot or elsewhere. So... This is a key on using these technologies as well. The benefits are enormous, um, but there are pitfalls that we have to be aware of. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a question for you that's a little bit running off on a tangent. I, I actually, when I meet people like you who have quite an amazing background and have taken quite an interesting route to end up where they are, I think it's quite interesting to discuss your kind of origin story and how did you actually end up where you are because you've been a lot of places and it doesn't look like it's been a very direct route up the mountain. (laughs) So it would be great if you'd be happy to share. Um, Sometimes people ask me that, hey, Mikko, you're, you're a cybersecurity expert. How do you, how do you become a cybersecurity expert? How, 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 what's the road, what's the road to becoming an expert? And I always tell them that, you know, the way you become an expert in any field is that you pick a subject then you work in the area forever, and then eventually everybody believes that you're an expert. Because <laughs> that's basically what I've done. After 32 years, everybody believes I'm an expert, but uh, 
there's no magic here. I'm just uh, I've just been around forever, and I uh, I've seen the whole industry change from the very early early days when there was no cybersecurity industry at all to where we are today, a multi-billion-dollar international behemoth. It's 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 quite crazy. But I started as a programmer. Um, I uh, started programming as a teenager. I sold my first published commercial programs when I was 17, like utilities and games, of course. I wrote a series of published adventure games early on in the 1980s. I was born in 1969, so so I've been uh, um, doing this for quite a while. In fact, sometimes people talk about how old the internet is, and I always mention to them that I'm older than than uh, TCP IP. <laughs> You know, DARPA had the first uh, IP networks running in December 1969. I was born a little bit before that. So how old is the internet? It's this old. That's, that's, that's what I tell people. <laughs> and the, the route from writing uh, programs in 1980s to then reverse engineering malware is actually fairly straightforward because writing code in 80s, if you wanted to get any kind of performance out of the systems... Like my first CPU was one, one megahertz CPU, which is ridiculous considering oh, wow. how slow it is. So you had to write with the fastest possible language, which means assembler. So I wrote all these utilities and, and games in assembler. I didn't even have an assembly compiler. I wrote it in machine code with a assembly, assembly monitor, um, which gives you a lot of low-level expertise, which means you can look at other people's code without source code and understand what the code is doing because you've wrote, written so much code at the low-level assembler by yourself. So then in 1991, when I was at my first real job working as a database programmer and the company was also doing security work on the site, when we got a very first virus sample sent to us on a five and quarter inch floppy disk, my boss gave it to me and say that, hey, Mikko, you, you know Assembler. Can you try to figure out what this code does? And it took me several days because this was a completely different system. I hadn't, hadn't done x86 Assembler before, but I figured it out. I printed the code on a stack of paper and took a pen, pencil and spent a couple of days, but I did figure it out. And it was kind of interesting. I thought, well, I, you know, I, I kind of like this. It's kind of like playing a game of chess against an unknown attacker. They're trying to build up things mm-hmm. that we cannot decode, and it feels kind of good, good when you can decode what they're writing, sort of like challenges. Exactly. And that's the road I'm still on. I did reverse engineering for several years. I built up our lab's functions, expanded our lab, lab to d- three different continents and uh, and all that. But I think the real change in my daily work after that was in 2011 when I got an invite to go and do do a talk at the TED conference and I did a TED talk which went online on YouTube has still today it's still today there on their channel has millions of views one of the most watched cybersecurity talks in history and when you do a TED talk then your phone starts ringing Initially, it's uh, <laughs> yes. it's uh, like all these uh, speaker agencies that, hey, you're now a TED speaker. We would like to represent you. And all these conferences around the world would like to like you to come and speak. And that's what changed then my, my uh, daily work quite a bit. Because I, I was already doing a lot of talk in, in, in uh, industry conferences, you know, black hats and RSAs mm-hmm. and uh, virus bulletins. 
But this then opened up the doors to all kinds of conferences, not just technology, not just IT, but anything. Because you're, you're now a TED speaker and people want, want to see you on stage. So I still do a lot of research and I do all of my own research, but uh, it's not really research for uh, reverse engineering a new malware or, or detecting something. It's research I do for, for the presentations I keep. I, uh, I've been doing it for over 10 years now and I, I kind of like it. So when in your evolution, personal evolution, did AI first become something you actually really got involved with? I actually have the first magazine that I uh, read, which had an article about artificial intelligence, and it's from 1983. Actually, I had to track it down, but I managed to find a copy of it. And it's quite amazing because this 40-year-old, like literally 40-year-old magazine, has a really correct forecast of artificial intelligence. That eventually, we will have fast enough computers which will be able to learn given enough data and they will be able to accomplish tasks like humans. And that's what we have today, 40 years later. But it did take several um, several technology revolutions. I mean, the, the first thing we really right. needed was the internet revolution which converted all information to data. Before internet, newspaper, news wasn't newspapers, books were paper. Now, of course, everything is data thanks to the internet. Second revolution, storage, or cloud, as we call it now. We actually have mechanisms of storing all that information, which means it can be used for machine learning. And then the third revolution, which is computing power. It's quite insane how fast computers today are. And if you look at the three nanometer technology, for example, inside iPhone 15s, it's like magic. I can't imagine how difficult it is to build these things. It's the most difficult thing to do in the world. It's easier to put a man on the moon than to build one of these chips at three nanometer technology. But the end result is that when you then combine these into these GPUs built by companies like NVIDIA, and when a company like Microsoft buys them in tens of thousands and put, puts them into their Azure mm -hmm. data center, we end up with the kind of capability where we can actually take all the finished books, give them to a large language model, and it picks up the goddamn language. Perkele. I can't understand how it's possible. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it'll make translating your book into multiple languages a lot easier. That's true. It's, it's interesting. My book has been now translated to five languages, including Ukrainian, which is being worked on right now. And all the publishers still use humans to do the translation. But uh, I suppose... Their work is at least helped by uh, by large language models already. I would think so. I would think so. So looking forward, where do you think AI is going? I do believe we will see human-level intelligence. And the timeline I'm giving to that is, is that I think we're going to see it during my lifetime. I mentioned I was born in 1969, so, you know, somewhere in the upcoming decades. But I don't think it's too far away. And, and I also believe as soon as we're going to hit human-level intelligence, we're going to hit superintelligence right after that. Because there's no limit or reason why the development would stop at human intelligence level. There's no law which says that intelligence and creativity has to come from humans or animals or, let's say, from meat. There's no law which says that 
creativity and, and intelligence couldn't come from technology. So, yeah, that's where we're going. And, and uh, it's, again, exciting and scary. But um, we, we tend to think that we control whatever we build. And here we might be wrong. When we are building systems which are smarter than ourselves, we might not be able to control them. Then again, we can't even control our kids. So how could we control these? <laughs> Excellent. So true. So uh, one more question, though. Uh, when's the next book coming out? Oh, that's a great question. Um When my phone started ringing in 2011 after the TED Talk, some of the calls were from book publishers. Hey, Mikko, you should write a book. All TED speakers write a book. Write a book. So I started writing a book in 2011. At the same time when I was like doing 180 flights a year and traveling to different places. It's, um, it wasn't really going anywhere. I tried writing a book on planes and airport lounges and hotels. Ten years later, I was still writing it. So it, it, it wasn't working <laughs> yes. out. What really then changed the game for me was the pandemic. Because um, then I had no excuses. Mm. Like, you know, if I'm writing the book, right now there's nothing distracting me from writing the book. So I did write most of the text during the pandemic, um, which really worked out very well for me. And now when people ask me, when, when is the next book coming? It's coming when the next pandemic hits. <laughs> It's good focus time. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, ho hopefully there won't be a next one, but, you know, who knows, right? I mean, that's that's the wonderful thing about life. We just don't know what's going to happen in the yeah. next five, ten years. So, but I would love to see a new book. I, I think uh, you've got, a, you know, probably a screenplay in you. Uh, that would be amazing as a movie. Um, so uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge advocate if you need someone to read that screenplay. When you have a draft, I'm happy to be here to do that. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll keep that in mind. It would be so good. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Uh, well, Mika, thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, been such a wonderful discussion. I really appreciate your, your thoughts and your insights on AI. I mean, it's it just so interesting all the questions we have around it and what's going to happen um it'll be interesting to circle back in a year and mm -hmm. see what's changed and it and i suspect it's going to be quite dynamic change as yep. well and and that would be a lot of fun to to have that conversation in 12 months and and see what's been what's been going on and what's next for sure thank so you for having to all me of our listeners yes thank you um Please, please be sure to check out Miko's book. We will put a link to it um, in the show notes. It's called If It's Smart, It's Vulnerable. Uh, really great read. Um, and, and again, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and until next time, stay secure. Thanks for joining us for the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher.